So having done a, uh, a year of thematic preaching, that is picking a subject and then grabbing scriptures from all over the place to explain the subject, we are now looking at a, a long season of scriptural preaching, which is that we pick a book or a particular part of a book and we go through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, reading it, explaining it and applying it. And this is, this is kind of my preferred way of preaching on a Sunday morning. And then I see the passage I have to preach on today, and then I'm less encouraging. And then I wonder whether we should have continued the values, just to, done hundreds of them. You know, value 84, good biscuits for welcome, something like that. Or maybe I should, we should have kept going with the hundred characteristics of a bold Christian. You know, I don't know, boldness through sport, or something random like that. Um, but this is the word of the Lord, so thanks be to God, and uh, I'll tackle through it in a minute. But, but, but seriously, I, as, I mean, it's great to pray. I, I'm going to pray as well, because we do need God's help at all times. Um, and it isn't just about praying for me, although I appreciate the prayers. It is about yourselves. We should pray for ourselves that we would have ears to listen to what God wants to say, that he will help us focus on what we're looking at and not kind of drift off in our mind and think about other things that we all are tempted to do at times. So let me pray. Father God, we ask just for that. We ask for ears that will hear what your spirit wants to say and do amongst us this morning. We love your word. We love it. It is our treasured possession. And Lord, we want to not just read it, we want to do what it says, we want to base our very lives on it. We want to be that wise builder that Jesus spoke about, who built his life on the rock of the words of Jesus Christ. And I pray you help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me recap. We're going to read starting from verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 1. Mostly this is a great excuse because I just love this passage, so I want to go over it again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is superior to theirs. So basically, if you want to know God, the invisible, the all-consuming Holy One, you look at Jesus Christ. If you want to know the heart of God, then you look at what Jesus did for you as he made purification for your sins. And when you feel that you need to add to your salvation by good works or any religious ritual, take a scriptural upward look at where Jesus is right now. He's not rushing around desperately trying to save people. He's not all got these like angels running around him with clipboards saying, we need to help out Ben. He's not really ready yet. He's not surrounded by 50 phones that are all going off at once, requests of how he's going to save these people on earth. The Bible says he has sat down. You don't get to sit down and put your feet up until the job is complete. And Jesus sat down, it says, because everything had been, that was required for your salvation was done on the cross and through the empty grave. So let's look at the passage for today from verse 5. Just to say, in this sermon and in the ones to come, there will be quite a lot of overlap because the author is building up an argument. He's showing over several chapters how Jesus really is the better way. 
So there will be overlap between sermons, but that's okay because you get to learn it. Apparently you need to hear things at least three times before you remember them. For some of you, it's much, much, much more than that. And for me, actually. Later in the book, the author is going to explain how Jesus could do so much for so many in that moment. But first he needs to restate and explain and and just kind of put in foundational truth as to how all of that could come about. So let's go through this passage. I'm going to do it sort of verse by verse. And again, I will get to it in a moment. Just one, one more thing I want you to notice as we do it. Notice as he looks at, you know, our title is Jesus superior to the angels. And as he looks at Jesus' superiority over the angels, he doesn't, you know, look at the evidence he uses and where it comes from. It's not from kind of great philosophers of the time. It's not from his own wisdom or his own thoughts. And as I lay at home and thought about this, this is what I came up with. It isn't about his own salvation moment and how he felt in that moment. It is all scriptural evidence. It comes from the only true authority and the only guaranteed place of truth, the word of God. And it's sad that so many Christians have gone astray because their Bibles have gathered dust at home. And we can think, well, I I haven't got the time. I'm too busy. I haven't got the time. Or pride. I don't need it. You know, I've heard people say, I've read my Bible. I know what it says. And you think, well, it's the word of God. So we can have busyness or pride or apathy just not the desire to do it but trust me we have the time we have the need let's get the desire for the word of God because if regular bible study isn't in our daily routine then we are drifting from the path God wants for our life and then all we need to simply do is to do what we can do in a moment we're going to read through the passage explain the context look at some of the references explain the context of those references and then come up with a conclusion Right, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The author doesn't actually give the answer. If you're not sure, the answer is no, by the way. None of them. Not Michael, not Gabriel, not Casper, not Cupid. None of them. None of the angels. None of these mighty heavenly beings were given a status or that was said over them. Jesus Christ, we see, is superior in, by name and superior by status. You'll find the, these are passages quoted from Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 89. And this is a really helpful, again, of how we should read all Scripture. Because in every story, every event, every prophecy, you've got the main plot and you've got the subplot. And so the subplot for these Psalms was all about David. That's the subplot. Normally you read it and think, that's the main plot. It's not. That's the subplot. All about David. How, the father, you know, how God the Father treated him like a son and regarded him like a son and how disciplined him like a son. That's how David was treated by God. But that's only the subplot. The main plot was all about Jesus Christ. And it's always about Jesus Christ. The main plot of all the events in Scripture is Jesus Christ. You know, we think about like, the David and Goliath story. And you hear it preached, and I've probably done it myself, you know, we can be the David, we can stand up to the enemy, and we can defeat the Goliaths in our life. But that's just not true. We're the frightened Israelites at the back, and it's the greater David, it's our Jesus Christ, who goes up in front of us and defeats the enemy, and then we get caught up in that victory. 
The subplot was about David killing a big man. The main plot, Jesus defeating Satan, our enemy, and us getting caught up in the victory. You see, there's the main plot and the subplot. It's funny because so many Christians think that Jesus was the kind of the plan B when Israel and the Lord just didn't work out. But it's always been about Jesus Christ. They imagine that the 400 years between the Testaments is some kind of crisis meeting in heaven. Guys, it didn't work with Israel. We need to think of something else to do. You imagine in heaven these kind of blue sky thinking, which I guess it would always be in heaven. Or these like brainstorming sessions. Guys, we need to save humans somehow. And then Jesus puts his hand up and says, well, I could go. It's always been about Jesus Christ. All the sacrifice stuff, all the heroes, all the events, all the prophecy, it's all about Jesus Christ. So let's not ignore the Old Testament thinking, well, that's before Jesus and the Old New Testament's important because it's about Jesus. It is all about Jesus Christ. One way I found it helpful to remember, Old Testament, Jesus concealed, New Testament, Jesus revealed. When you read the Old Testament, it's a bit like playing hide and seek. It's a bit harder to spot, but you can find Jesus in there. So anyway, back to the passage. It says, you are my son, today I've become your father. Become isn't a helpful word there. Jesus didn't become the son of God as many cults believe. But rather he derived his position from someone else, from the father. It's a, a little bit like the fact that I'm a father because Joshua is my son and because Abigail is my daughter. I derive my status from someone else, my relationship with them. But even so, that is a lost-in-translation moment. Begotten is probably the best English word we have for it. Still, it doesn't cover the fact that it's not perfect. But we know that Jesus is the Son. He has always been and will always be the Son. He is of the Father in terms of his same nature and character. He is not of the Father in terms of he derives his existence from the Father, as if he never existed at some point. So verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This time we see it prophesied in Psalm 97 verse 7, but then we wonderfully see it demonstrated at Christmas. Uh, You know, I don't know if you realize, but in most Old Testament moments of angelic visitation, it's not a good thing in the Old Testament. Normally it means judgment. So there's an angel that guards the entrance to the Garden of Eden. It's an angel of death that goes through goes through and kills the firstborn in Egypt. It's an angel that comes down and kills 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. Normally when you see an angel, Old Testament, you are scared because it means you've done something wrong and you're about to meet your maker and face judgment. This is why, so the shepherds and Mary and all suddenly see these angels and they're terrified because to them it means judgment. And then, but in the book of Luke, you see this whole horde of angels, this whole choir of angels Not come in judgment, but to sing worship songs about the moment when Jesus Christ comes into the world. It's funny, it reminds me of those, um, you may have got one, those kind of songs from the Battlefield album. Have you seen those kind of things? Where you get these really trained British army soldiers who can kill you in ten ways, and they're singing in beautiful harmony and all these nice kind of hymns and things like that. I don't know about you, but I cannot get chilled out by guys who are trained killers like that. This is what the shepherds saw to a greater extent. All these angels worship when God's son was revealed to the world. You don't worship equals and you don't worship subordinates. We know our place. Jesus, superior in worth, worthy of worship. Verse number seven, arguments building. 
In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels wings, winds, his servants flames of fire. Psalm 104, the context of that passage is about God, the creative one, making the whole universe, including angels. And the author is making the point that the angels look pretty cool. They can do fun stuff with wind and fire. Verse 8, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Speaking of Jesus, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. This time we find the quotes from Psalm 45. And again, subplot. King David, main plot, Jesus Christ, the true king. And so the the author's making the point, well, these angels look pretty cool, don't they? They can do cool stuff, but Jesus is king. He trumps all of it, and his kingdom is of righteousness. Angels, they're servants. They serve the king that is Jesus. Continuing the argument, verse 9, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Again, we're still in Psalm 45. Subplot of Psalm 45, wasn't David such a great king? Not only was he, you know, could write a few songs. Not only was he a pretty handy warrior, could wrestle a bear and down a giant. But more importantly to God, he hated wickedness and loved righteousness. Now, he didn't do it perfectly. You can read Bathsheba's diary to prove that one. But he, he was the forerunner of a greater David, whose throne would be about righteousness and justice, and it would be about hating wickedness and sin. You know, the heavenly angels only, as we see them, they only know one existence. They've never experienced temptation or sinful desire. But the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way. He was tempted more than anyone who's ever lived since or before, but he always chose the Father's will. So Jesus is also superior in example of how to live a life. Author isn't done yet. He keeps building on this argument, keeps point after point. He says, you know, that's not all. Look at verse 10. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Now the author's building on his argument, isn't he? Psalm 102. Not just about David, but about, uh, this time not about David, but about God. But this time, the author of Hebrews is kind of connecting that, that psalm passage that every good Jew would think was just about God, the Father who created all things. He said, no, actually, it was the Son involved. This one's as much about Jesus, the Son, as the Father. Paul agrees with him. He says in Colossians 1.16, he says, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. You find Jesus is the creator. He's superior in nature. Angels, they're created beings. They they had a beginning and potentially one day they may have an end, just like the earth. Jesus will forever be the same. Always has been and always will be. Our final verses, 13 and 14, have a look at them. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The answer to though, by the way, is none of them, and then yes. We're again in Psalm 110, the argument builds. I'd, I'd love to imagine the author writing this or getting passionately excited about it. 
talking to these guys who think the angels might be superior to Jesus. And he says, yeah, but Jesus does this and the angels just do that. And Jesus is like this, but look at what the angels are like. And just he's kind of building up this argument. Psalm 110, we're back with David's Psalms. Psalm 110 is all about this prophetic conversation between David, the king, and the, the king to come. That is the Messiah. But that's only the subplot. The main plot is about the father speaking to the son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. It's the father acknowledging the superior status. We've got superior status again, verse 13. The angels are just servants. In fact, they're not just servants of God. The Bible says they are servants of those who will inherit salvation. Guess what, guys? That's us. It says they are servants of those who will reign with Christ forever. That is us. See the argument building. Superior in name, superior in status, superior in worth, superior in example, superior in role, in nature, and then in status again in case we forgot. Have we got it yet? Have we got it? No? Do you want me to go through it again? Has the truth been hammered home? You know, it, Jesus is superior to the angels. Okay, Barnabas or Apollos or whoever wrote this passage, we get it. And now we can move on. Because for the rest of the time, I want to do three things. Firstly, I do want to talk about angels. Because although this is a subplot, it is still handy for us to talk about. Secondly, I'm going to ask the question, why were angels such an issue for these guys? And then thirdly, I'm going to ask the bigger question, so what? Problem for them doesn't necessarily mean problem for me. You know, why don't we skip all these kind of background verses and chapters and get to the good, you know, the therefore passages, the real application for Joe Christian of 21st century Britain. And then we're going to apply it. And then we're going to do some prayer and ministry and we're going to take communion and we're going to sing. Because I'm, honestly, I'm convinced both scripturally and prophetically that there is a work that God wants to do in us. And a work that God needs to do in us as well. So let's just stick with angels for a moment. Because perhaps there is stuff for us to learn. Let's consider a few things about angels as the subject has come up. Firstly, remember, don't worship them. Sounds really obvious, but it's worth noting. Recently, I was asked to read a book called Stairways to Heaven by a a Christian author. Well, she says she's a Christian author called Laura Byrne. She has sold millions of books as a Christian author in the Christianity and religion section of um, of the bookstore. But it is all about angel worship. They get praised. They get honored. They get worshiped. Jesus doesn't. You know, it's funny because normally when I finish a book, my first thought is, who can I recommend this to? With this book, the moment I'd read it, my first thought was, where are my matches? Honestly. It was funny because I, you know, I know I could have thrown it away. I could have recycled it. I generally thought, what if someone goes through my bins, finds this book, reads it, and then gets led astray because of it? I, I got very paranoid in that moment. I thought, just in case someone's going through the bins or going through recycling, as they do in my house, and, um, or found it on a rubbish tip, it didn't get, get you know, somehow didn't get through that fire, um, and there, for some reason, read it. But you know what? The more we consider angels, the more we talk about them, the more we read books about them, the more likely we are to slip from respect into worship. 
It's funny because even, even John in that wonderful vision of heaven that he got in Revelation, in Revelation 22, he stands before this angel and he's in awe of him and he begins to bow down and the angel's like, don't worship fellow servants. He says, worship God only. And this was the apostle John who knew better. And there are so many of us who tempt worship with the time and the energy we give to subjects like angels. Personally, I would say don't even bother reading books about them. That is, unless you've read all the other books about Christ that have ever been written first. Really, guys, I, I wouldn't even bother. You know, my, really, a lot of us need to get real truth in us, so we shouldn't waste our time over imagined and perceived stuff. If you ever want a book, I'm happy to recommend. I've got a little library, and I'm happy to recommend good books before we start looking at the angel stuff in the Christianity section. So don't worship them. Secondly, don't pray to them. Often we find we're slipping in that, well, angels, will you watch over this home? You think, okay, God watches over our home. We pray to God. We give him the glory. It's a bit like if Abigail came to me and wanted something that cost money and she would ask my wallet for it. Okay? Or worse, if I give her some money for something, she then goes and thanks my wallet for that thing. You think, no, I, I did it. It was my money. It happened to be in my wallet at the time. But we don't worship servants we worship the king god always gets the glory he deserves our prayers thirdly don't see angelic visitations as proof of god's love i remember that i was at a bible week once where apparently some people saw angels and because it was on a camp you know around the site the kind of rumor spreads and everyone's like oh god please show me your angels then we'll then we'll know that you're really with us and that you really love us what is the proof of god's love for us the cross. If we ever doubt God's love for us, look to the cross. You want to know you're accepted? Look to the cross, not to angels. What's the proof that God hasn't forsaken us? Well, he promised in his word, later in Hebrews, I will never forsake you or leave you. That should be enough. And whether I ever see an angel in my life or not, I know God's for me because of the cross and because of his word. Fourthly, running through them, lastly, don't seek out angelic messengers, uh, messages. You know, in the early 20s, there was a guy called Joseph Smith, and he believed that an angel called Moroni, which for me is a reason not to believe it anyway, um, gave him new revelations in scripture. He believed that an angel led him to uncover a book that was hidden and buried underground, which they now call the Pearl of Great Price, which I think is the most childish understanding of Jesus' parable, I think, ever. But the Church of the Latter-day Saints and Mormonism was born from this guy's angelic revelations. And next month, we may see our first American Mormon president. And you may say this, see this as being completely off the wall. But actually, you can find similar stories in today's church, on the internet, or God channels on satellite. Well, an angel spoke to me and told me to do this. An angel told me and brought me this message. And even today, you hear Christians who are convinced that angelic visitations are the highest confirmation of someone's ministry. But it's not. The highest confirmations of someone's ministry is their relationship with Jesus Christ and nothing else. So we need to be careful we're not kind of sitting around waiting for some angelic or equivalently supernatural message from God about our own ministry. Well, I'm just waiting for God for his vision and mission for my life. No, you're not. You're being disobedient. God has given you a mission. He has given you a vision to make disciples, to be his witnesses, to be salt and light, to preach the gospel. Yeah, but I don't really know where that is. Well, 
Why not start here where God has placed you? Let's start with the opportunities that we have already been given in God. But I don't know how to do it. Well, let's look at where God has placed you and the status you find yourself right now and go with that. Because in a way, it's kind of arrogance to often be thinking, well, I'm looking for something bigger and better, as if the people of Billingshurst don't need the gospel like other people do. His word, what he has said in his word, is better than any angel turning up and speaking to us. It's better than skywriting. It's better than tablets of stone and fingers writing on the wall. It's God's word. So that's angels dealt with very quickly. Make sure we don't worship them. I personally wouldn't even bother reading books about them. For me, it's a bit like watching soap operas. Nothing inherently wrong with it, probably. Just, you know, half an hour of your life every day is just quite a lot of time to give away. Don't look for further proof of God's love or presence or acceptance than the cross. Don't seek out angelic messengers. They'll always be inferior to what God has already said and the message of Jesus Christ. So moving on. Like I said, I, I, I wanted to explain why angels were such an issue to these guys. Why are they so concerned? Why does the author feel he has to go to such lengths to make what seems a very, I'm sure to you and me, a very obvious point, Jesus is superior to the angels? Well, this is why we need to consider the context of, this, the, of the letter. As the name applies, it was written to Hebrews or Hebrew Christians, that is, Jewish converts to Christ, which at the time made up far and away the largest group of the early church. So what did the Jews think about the angels? Well, to a Jew, the angel performed perhaps the most important role that's ever been performed on earth. They gave Moses the law. The traditional belief of the Jews was that angels gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai. And to a Jew, the law was to be treasured above everything else on earth. For three reasons. Firstly, because it was God's instructions for a happy life. God's instruction manual. Second reason they wanted to was that it was kind of a national identity thing. You know, it was something, the law was something that set them apart from all the other nations. It made them special and unique. But most importantly, out of all of them, it was their greatest revelation of God. That's why they loved it so much. It was the greatest revelation of God to them. And this is why guys like King David and the psalmist got so excited and passionate about the law, which to us seems a little bit strange. In Psalm 119, 97, it says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. This guy, he sounds love-struck, doesn't he? He could just say, I love your law, Lord. It's fantastic. But he, he adds like a sigh at the beginning. It's like a, oh, how I love your law. It's like a teenager in love with it. You imagine him going up to trees and carving his name and, you know, BM for LAW forever. He's, he's in love with the law because it reveals God to him. Interestingly as well, you see it in modern synagogues today. A few years ago, I got to visit um, the synagogue in Hove, which, well, on a school trip with Louise. And it was, it was so fascinating to see Jewish synagogues and Jewish worship today. And the first thing you notice is they have this box at the front, which they call the Holy Ark. And this is the holiest place in the synagogue, and this is where they store the law of the Lord. And it's not in books like we've got today. No, they, they, they treasure it above that. They have it in long scrolls. And these scrolls are hugely delicate and ornate. Somewhere in the region of 30, 40, 50,000 pounds these things cost. 
they are handwritten, they are proofread twice, they're now actually proofread three times, one by a computer. It often takes a year and a half to write out this law on each of these scrolls, and they are beautiful. You're not allowed to touch them, so you have these page pointers so you can follow along in the law. That is how treasured the law is today. Because to them, it is their greatest revelation of God, who he is and his covenant with mankind. And this is why some Jews who had converted to Christianity in the first century still had this inflated view of angels. But the author is going to pains to to explain that even though the angels were glorious, who had apparently passed the best revelation of God at the time, the law to mankind, they were nothing compared to the true and the final and complete revelation of God that came in Jesus Christ. And this is why the author begins in verse 1. He says, In the past, God did speak to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, sometimes through angels. Verse 2, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the completion and the meaning and the fulfillment of all the previous revelations of God. And so the author gives reference after reference after reference. Have you got it yet? No? Well, let me go again. Have you got it yet? No. Get it again. And he's like this prize boxer who's just laying into him time and again with Jewish scriptures about how Jesus is the final and best um, superior to all that had come before. And the great problem with, with these new converts to Judaism is that, from Judaism was that they were trying to fit Jesus around their traditional beliefs But you can't do that with Jesus. He doesn't fit nicely because it's all about him. It always has been and always will be. And it's a bit like when you have birthdays or Christmases with young children. And you wrap up, you buy, you wonder what they want, you go and buy what they want, you spend lots of money, and then they unwrap it, and then they open the box, take the thing out, and then start playing with the box. Or you buy their favorite character um, wrapping paper. And you wrap it up, the present up beautifully with bows and ribbons. And then they dare not rip the paper because it's got Bob the Builder on it. And they're so impressed with the wrapping paper. And this is what the believers were doing just a generation after Christ walked the earth. Focusing on the wrapping and not the gift. Concerned with the box and not the present inside. And we must be careful as well. Because before we get on our moral high horse and say, well those stiff-necked Jews up, up to it again. As I mentioned a bit last week, this is actually human nature. This is not just what they were like, their stumbling blocks, their tendencies. This is what we are like. This is our stumbling blocks and our tendencies. This is what humans are like. To consider it just a first-century problem would be like us reading Paul's letters to the Corinthians and think, whoa, those guys had a sex problem. You think, no, we have the sex problem. The humans do. Or be like us reading Galatians and thinking, you stupid Galatians. You've been bewitched. You're choosing legalism over grace. You think, no, that's what we do. That's what we're like. But do understand this. If the passage had been irrelevant to anyone born after the first century, God wouldn't have put it in. Okay, He is not a student trying to pad out his essay. If it meant nothing to the Hebrew, anyone but the Hebrew Christians, God, who loves trees very much, I imagine, wouldn't have wasted so many on writing a book like Hebrews if it's pointless. You know, I'm very sad. I did the maths on it. Hebrews in my Bible takes 33 pages, and I've got quite a lot of Bibles. <laughs> Times that by the number of Bibles that have been printed, 
six billion or so, plus the New Testament chapters, probably another couple of billion. Conservative estimate, two to two and a half million trees wasted on a book that no one needs to read. That book of Hebrews. Not to mention all the commentaries that try and make sense of it. That's a lot of trees for something that's irrelevant to long dead readers. But then that leads me to my final point, the so what. How can we apply this to ourselves? If all the Bible is relevant, how is this one relevant? Well, it is relevant because though we may not be Hebrew, we are human. And we have the same tendencies and temptations. And we want to tag Jesus along with our, onto our list of priorities, along with all the other stuff that we think is important. For those Hebrews, it was Jesus was just another bit of revelation to fit in with the rest. So the author went to, for, to pains to explain, no, Jesus is the revelation of God. You want to know God, it is only through Jesus Christ. You want to be saved, it is only through Jesus Christ. You want an intercessor? It's not Mary, it's not your priest, it's not your pastor, it's Jesus Christ. You want a prophet, you want to hear the word of God. You don't wait for the guy, you know, the nice prophet guy who stands up on TV or you don't wait for a message from him. Your message is from Jesus Christ. And this is the application. And having asked a question in a moment, I'm then going to ask the band to come up and we're going to sing and we're going to pray and minister. Is Jesus just an addition to your life? Or can you truly say, like Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ? Can we really say, my life, for me to live, well, it's Christ? Would our friends say that of us? Well, Ben, you know, he's, he's just all Christ, isn't he? Would our families, would our, would our kids say that of us? I know kids who say, for, my, for me, dad's all about snooker or football. Now, would they say, no, for, him, to, to, for, me, dad, for my dad to live, it's Christ. For my mum to live, it's Christ. Would our partners say that about us? You know, to them, to live, live is Christ. Is Jesus just an addition, just one more thing that we worship alongside, well, our career? Well, I've got this boss and he's just, you know, he's very demanding. I don't have time for anything else. You think, yeah, but you've got a bigger boss. Does it, is it run alongside worshipping, you know, things like our kids? Yeah, well, Billy needs to go and play football and uh, he's got his cello lessons and he can't miss out on all those parties that kids go to. What about our health? Spend more time at the, you know, just worshipping our health. It's funny because sometimes God takes our health away to remind us it's an idol, but then we don't get it. What about our car? Well, I bought this car, therefore I've got to look after I've got to go to these rallies. Or we make this big purchase and then that becomes, then we have to justify it by doing things with it. And it, then it becomes a stewardship issue. Well, I, well, God won't be happy if I bought this thing and then I, I didn't spend all my time. And you think, well, maybe God wasn't happy in the first place. It's very easy. We tag it on. Oh, maybe it's worship of our house. Yeah, well, we've just poured everything into the house at the moment. We need to get it perfect. Or our partners. We can worship our partners. Well, it's just, I just need time with them. Yeah, you do. But you also need time with your first bride, for your first groom, that is Jesus Christ. It was so easy for the Hebrews to tag Jesus onto their previous beliefs. What they were once told and believed was important in life. Have we done the same thing? Have we just tagged Jesus along to what everyone tells us is important in life? Does he have a place in our life or does he have the top spot? Is Jesus really superior in your heart? in your worship, in your time, in your passion, or is he inferior to them?
If someone videotaped your life and played your thoughts, recorded all your thoughts, would they really conclude Jesus is superior to you? Because the Bible says he's superior in name, in status, in worth, in in worthiness of worship, in example, in role, in nature, and in status again to anything else that has been created or revealed to us. Who or what deserves the highest honor and respect and praise in your heart? Is it the Son of God, the great revelation of Jesus Christ? You know, we've entitled this sermon series, The Better Way. Because Hebrews keep saying, you know, the old revelation was great. This is better. You know, the old priestly covenant, that was great. Jesus is better. The old system, the old means of grace was good. This is better. Now we have something better. All the gifts of God are good. Money, friends, family, possessions, jobs, identity, status. Jesus is a better way. Let me pray. Can the band come up? Is that right? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In the past, God spoke to to our forefathers at various times and in various ways, but now, in these last days, he speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, for, these, for, for those first century Christians, angels was their stumbling block. Through the law and through angels, they felt that something was superior to you. And Lord, we can't point fingers at them without realizing actually the fault is human, not Hebrew. And our temptation is to add you onto other things that we think are superior or even equal in worth to you. Holy Spirit, I ask you to be moving in this room right now. Lord, it's not enough. It's not enough what we do. What we do with you. I confess that myself. It's not enough. We may say it with our words and our songs, but Lord, are we living it out? Are we adding you onto other things? Or do you take the first spot? Do you take the primary? Do you have the supremacy in our own lives? It's not my place to convict people. The Holy Spirit... That's his job. I'm allowed to challenge you from his word, but it's the Holy Spirit that does conviction, not me. So I pray, Holy Spirit, where that is appropriate, where that is needed, not for our comfort, it's not about our comfort, it's about your glory, where that is needed, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would just begin to move in this place. Just, just where you are. In a moment, we're going to take communion as a, as a step, as a 
a choice. And maybe the Holy Spirit says, well done to you right now. I say, great. Maybe the Holy Spirit's working on things in your life already and this is just confirming things, but actually, you know, there's a work begun and it's, it's, it's progressing. You can see that. God's at work in you and that's great. But I suspect there are other people who are challenged by this. As, it, as we should be when the word of God is opened. And in the moment we're going to sing, but maybe there's... The Bible says when we take confe- um, communion, there should be a confession as well. The Bible says we should check our hearts. We should do a mini personal audit of the last few days and the last few weeks, maybe the months since our last audit. Okay, how am I with Christ? How is my relationship with him? Has something else that seems as worthy as as that crept in? I'm sure it's not angels. I'm sure it might be something else there. Let's not forget, God is a God of grace. The Bible says that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer here today, you should never feel condemned. Ever. By anything or anyone. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But the Bible says there is still conviction of sin. Conviction, the difference between conviction and condemn, condemnation Condemnation says, I am worthless, I am not accepted by God. Conviction says, I need to change something about me. It's a huge difference. I don't want anyone here who's a believer in Christ Jesus to ever feel condemned. But I know for myself, I need conviction.